So uh, they'll tell you in seminary that the best sermon you'll ever preach is the one you preach to yourself. And now I'm certainly not saying that you're about to hear the best sermon you'll ever hear. What I'm saying is this message is so a part of me, it's so defined how I think about God, how I think about faith, how I think about Christian living, probably more than any other text or any other message. And the reason is this. This morning, I want to talk about trials. I want to talk about struggling. I want us to talk about how do you live life when your world seems to be burning up and crashing down around you. Because one thing I noticed when I became a Christian was that on Sunday morning, everybody you talk to is always so good all the time. I mean, I promise, go in the open space and listen to how people talk with one another, and this is what you're going to hear, something like this. How's life? How was your week? Oh, it was really good. It was really awesome. Like, kids are great. Marriage is great. Man, faith is strong. God is good. And, you know, work is work, but we get to vacation in the Cape next month, so life's just really good right now. We're really happy to be here. Everyone's so good all the time on Sunday morning. But then when you get to know people at a deeper level, you realize, man, life's actually really hard. Like so many of us are just struggling to survive, let alone be great. Because life almost has this chokehold around our necks. And so I couldn't understand why it was that on a Sunday morning, when mostly Christians are around mostly Christians, we felt this pressure. We felt like we had to be so good. We had to paint on smiles and just wear nice clothes, pretend like everything's good, when deep inside, secretly, man, we are just suffering. And we don't know how much longer we can hang on. I've been doing pastoral work uh, now here at Genesis for the last 18 months. Uh, I think I know, or I think I'm getting to know, why we feel that need to be so good all the time. I think it's because, by and large, we have no idea what to do with God, how to think about God, how to interact with God when life is trial after trial. Like, because we're told how good and beautiful and big and powerful God is. So what do you do with that God when life is just a constant struggle? How do you interact with God in the midst of trials? And just to be clear, I'm not talking about like your boss yelled at you or you have a flat tire. I mean, how do you think about God when you're in your 30s now and you had these big plans for your life and you thought God was going to use you in big ways and now you're sitting here realizing this is a total disappointment. Like this cannot be what God had for me. What do you do with God when you were certain he was calling you to marry somebody. And now 10, 15 years in, you're just living together. And you fight and you bicker. And if you're honest with yourself, you think, if I could go back and redo it, I, I wouldn't marry this person. What do you do with God when you're stuck in a sin pattern? And it's been months, if not years. And this sin has so defined you, you can't even think about yourself without thinking of that sin. Because God was supposed to deliver me. But when he doesn't, how do you worship God in that? Or how do you worship God when a loved one has a terminal illness? You're helpless, you're powerless. How do you thank God when you and your spouse can't conceive? And it's been years, nothing's happening. How do you thank God when you're a parent praying for your kids 
who have gone so wayward, who have gone so far left field, and you're just begging they would come back, but they don't. How do you thank God for your family and your friends when they stabbed you in the back one too many times? What do you do with God when you know he's supposed to be present, but you feel absolutely alone? And there's people around you, but there's this loneliness that defines your life. See, how do you interact with God in the midst of trials? And even as I ask that, like, please don't just resort to a churchy answer. Because if I gave you a quiz with a paper and pen, you could write down something that sounded nice, sounded theologically right. But I mean, how do you actually think about God in the midst of trials? Because you need to have an answer for that question. Of all the things Jesus promised and guaranteed in the Gospels, one of the most clear ones was Jesus said, this world is going to be full of struggle. Like, there are going to be some dark moments. And so if you think you can just gut through it, and you can just toughen up, and you can paint on the smile and say, oh, things are really good, when honestly life's a trial, man, you're going to get to the end of your life, and you're going to miss what God had for you. You're going to be lonely and ornery. So how do you think about God in the midst of trials? If you have a Bible, open up to Luke 24. And this morning, I want to show how this story has rewritten my own story. And so just disclaimer, I'm going to pull the curtain back on my life a little bit. But I just want to say up front, at the end of this, I do not want like, sympathy or empathy or pity or anything. I'm telling you this story to encourage you, to empower you. And so if you have your Bible, it's Luke 24, and we're in verse 13. It says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking, about, uh, they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Because what's going on here? We have two disciples who are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus after their world had just come crumbling down. Right? Because these are disciples of Jesus. Right? And these guys, they had seen Jesus. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. And not only that, they've heard Jesus say some crazy things. He said he could forgive sin. He said that he was God. And these two disciples believed him. And not only did they believe him, they followed him with everything they had. Right? They left their homes and their families and their livelihoods because they thought Jesus was who he said he was. And now they're walking on this road after Jesus had just been strung up, nailed to a tree, and crucified. So you want to talk about a trial. These two guys are nothing. And now these guys have nothing. And Look what the text says. They were talking about all that had happened. Now, what do you imagine that conversation sounded like? What were the things being said? I'm guessing it was the, God, where are you? God, what are we supposed to do now? God, we're out of options. God, you promised to be with us, and now we're totally alone. What's going on is they're having the God, where are you moment. Have you had that moment before? When God feels absolutely nowhere to be found? 
and you pray gut-wrenching prayer after gut-wrenching prayer, and you're met with nothing but silence, God, where are you? And see, in that spot, I don't know if there's any place to go except doubt, confusion, anger, bitterness, loneliness, depression, detachment. That's where the disciples are at as they're walking the road to Emmaus. And the reason I know that's where the disciples are at is because that's where I spent most of my life. Growing up was not easy. Uh, And don't get me wrong, my parents loved me, my brothers and I loved each other, great relationships. But my childhood was absolutely hijacked by severe addictions. And my mom, uh, for almost all my life, battled and lost to different addictions. And so it did not take long for me to realize at a very young age that this was not like the life of most of my friends. Because I remember being terrified to bring friends home after school because I had no idea what state mom was going to be in. I remember most holidays marred by drunken rampages. I remember going to the hospital room to visit mom. The doctors weren't sure if she was going to wake back up after her latest overdose. I remember spending most weekends traveling to different treatment centers to talk to mom. I remember visiting mom, talking to her on the phone at jail, and you're watching her on a TV screen. I remember the homeless shelters. I remember the suicide watches. I remember all these things. I have conversations in my head, these images in my brain that no kid should have to have, let alone of their mom. But that's what I remember. You know what else I remember? I remember all the church people. And I remember all the church people saying all the same things. Kyle, you just got to pray about it. Kyle, you just got to have faith and pray about it because God works the good for all those who trust in him. Right? Like if I had a nickel for every time someone quoted me that verse, and they say, God is big and God is powerful and God cares for it, so you just have to pray. And so as a five, six, seven-year-old kid, okay, I would pray. And I would pray every night. I'd kneel against my bed, and I'd just say, God, help mom. God, help our family. And you want to know what happened? Absolutely nothing. So what do you do in that moment? When the God who's supposed to be big and powerful, the God who's supposed to care for you, and you're crying out to him, and just as a kid, and he ignores you, Like, what do you do when the only one who can save you doesn't? When the only one who can give you a lifeline chooses to ignore you? What do you do in the midst of trials? I can tell you what I did. I got angry. And I gave up on God because apparently God had given up on me. And I still remember this one conversation, and I wish I could forget it, but I can't. I was probably 10 or 11 and I'm in the back seat of my grandma's car. Only time I ever raised my voice was Nana. She's driving, she looks up in the rearview mirror. She says, Kyle, are you still praying for your mom? I remember the venom racing through my veins. And I said, Grandma, I will not waste one more minute on prayer. 
Because apparently God doesn't care. Look at the evidence. Grandma, why are you still praying for mom? So there I was. And from that moment for the next 10, 11 years, no, life's a trial. It's a struggle. And my life's characterized by anger, depression, loneliness, bitterness. Why? Because God was not who he was supposed to be. And the disciples are wrestling with the exact same question. Because in verse 21, the disciples are talking and they say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Right? They had an expectation of who God was supposed to be and how God was supposed to act. And when God didn't meet that expectation, we didn't do what they expected him to do. When God didn't rescue them, then they're lost. The same thing for us. We have those same expectations. We expect God to heal us. I expected God to rescue. I expected him to hear my prayer. And when he didn't, like the disciples, you start to lose hope. And you start to lose hope when you've lost hope. That's when you find yourself walking on this road to Emmaus. And I know that so many of us just came in this morning and we just told everyone how good we are, how great we are when we walk through the open space. But I know so many of us right now, we're walking on the road to Emmaus. We're feeling hopeless. We're feeling like God doesn't care. And we're just struggling to survive. And if that's you this morning, I just want, I need you to hear this. It's okay. Like if that's where you're at, it's okay to be at that spot. And the reason it's okay is because that's where the disciples are at. But God doesn't leave them there. So we pick up the story in verse 15. And just, I'm not sure I've read a more profound theological statement than what we're about to read. It says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So hold up for a second, because this is now resurrected Jesus, right? This is, I just defeated sin, I just conquered the grave, I just rose from the dead, I should be on my throne in heaven receiving worship from all of creation. That's not where that he is. No, Jesus draws near in the midst of their trial and walks with them. How do you interact with God in the midst of trials? Now you've got to hold on to this truth that God is near. You need to sink your teeth into that. Because this life, it is a tidal wave. And it's going to toss you against the rocks your whole life. And when you're beaten and broken and bruised, the only life raft you have is knowing God is near. He draws near, he goes with. And I love it because the detail Luke gives is while they were talking and discussing. So as they're talking and discussing about what a fake Jesus was, as they're thinking, I can't believe I gave my life to that guy. I can't believe I got duped for such a fraud. At that moment, that is when Jesus draws near. That's when he goes with you. I mean, how good does that make our God? He doesn't just say good luck with a trial and sends you into it. He doesn't just wait for you to get out of it and pat you on your back and say, way to sustain Way to pretend things were good. 
No, in the midst of trials, Jesus draws near and walks with. But now, almost with a divine sense of humor, the story turns in verse 16. And it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So why would Jesus keep the disciples' eyes from seeing him? Right, because if Jesus had just revealed himself to them, the trial would be over. Right, they'd feel good, they'd feel happy, they'd go back to being great all the time. But why does Jesus choose deliberately not to show himself to them? I think it's this. God is far more interested in restoring you through a trial than he is in rescuing you from a trial. Right? The disciples had some things to learn. And so Jesus wasn't going to let them off the hook. Now he had to teach them, restore their hope in God. When I look back, uh, growing up, as I'm starting to reflect on it, I've honestly wrestled with, Jesus, why wouldn't you just show up and liberate my mom from her addiction? Like, why wouldn't you just show up and just rescue our family from this living hell? Why would you choose to be hidden the whole time? I think one of the main reasons is this. Because I was broken. I was broken. I needed to be restored. Because I was so focused on my mom's addiction. I was so focused on her sin that I didn't realize I was the one who needed healing. I used my mom's junk, her addiction, to justify living the way I wanted to live, to justify my rebellion of God, saying, he doesn't care, so I'm not going to care about him. And the whole time, no, Jesus was near to me, near, walking with me, slowly restoring me, just whispering in my ear, Kyle, the reason you don't love me has nothing to do with your mom. The reason you don't love me has everything to do with you. Are you in a trial this morning? Struggle? Are you angry? Depressed? Lonely? If you hear nothing else, please hear this. God's ab- or silence is not God's absence. Like Jesus is near to you. He's walking with you. He might not be revealing himself to you because he's trying to restore something in you. He's trying to help you not look at someone, not blame something. But no, he's saying, what am I restoring in you? Because when you see Christ restore something in you, you begin to see God. And when you see God, hope will be found. Let's go back to the text. So Jesus, he's walking with these disciples. And for the next seven miles, he just listens to these two disciples complain about Jesus to Jesus. Because they still can't see him. And so they're just saying, he wasn't this, he was supposed to be that, he let me down here, I can't believe I followed him. And Jesus just takes it the whole time. He just takes it. And I think some of the things I feel most guilty and shameful about the things I used to say about Jesus, things I used to say about God, the things I did just to spite the guy. 
And the whole time, Jesus was there, and he was just taking it. Like at any moment, he could have revealed himself to me. I would have fallen to the floor, seen his glory, who knows, evaporated. But no, he just took it. Red's grace. So he's walking with these disciples, and they're complaining, he's taking it. And then this kind of pivot happens where Jesus now starts teaching the disciples as they're walking. And he's teaching from the law and the prophets. He says, well, wasn't the Messiah supposed to suffer? Like, wasn't the Messiah supposed to suffer all things and die? And eventually they end up in Emmaus, and they sit down for a meal. And I love that. In the midst of a trial, Jesus comes with a meal. And that's what happens in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us the scriptures? There is an appointed time when Jesus will reveal himself to you. And you're going to realize God was there the whole time. It's that moment of hard humility where you're going to say with the disciples, It was not my heart burning within me. Like, how did I miss God? I look back at my childhood, and now I see God all over the place. I see him trying to restore me. And I think, how did I miss that? Because, I mean, just think about this. He took the 10-year-old kid who vowed never to pray again. You know, my most constant prayer is now, God, give me a stronger desire to want to pray more. Because I've seen God move so much through prayer I know he's going to keep doing it, and so I just want to be a guy who's on his knees uh, before the throne of grace as much as I can be praying in his presence. Like, didn't my heart burn within me when God was restoring that? He took the whole situation, the very thing that I used to rebel against God, the thing that I thought proved God didn't care, God didn't love. No, now I realize I learned more about God's love and God's nearness at that time than I ever have. Like, didn't my heart burn within me? How did I miss that? I think about my mom. I think about how my relationship with her totally restored. Not one feeling of bitterness, anger. Relationship completely restored with my brothers and my mom. My dad and my mom. Like, how did I miss God not working at that? Like, wasn't my heart burning within me? If you just think about my mom, if you would have met that woman, there is not a lady who would lift her hands higher or who would sing louder in church because she understood that Jesus is near. She understood that she had to be restored through some things. How did I miss God working in her life? And when my mom passed away, uh, we can be honest, like there were some pretty deep, dark pits that she was in. But when she went home to glory, uh, she died in a warm bed. There was a roof over her head. She was surrounded by a family who loved her. And she was 11 months sober. How did I miss that? 
Like, wasn't my heart burning within me the whole time? Because Jesus is near. He walks with. And there will be a time that he's going to reveal himself to you. And you're going to see how he restored so much. If you're in a trial this morning, if, if you're feeling distant from God, just pay attention. Because your heart might be burning and you're missing it. He's near to you. He's walking with you. How do you interact with God in the midst of trials? For me, it's Jesus is near. I wanted to give you two pieces of application. Because I tell this story in hindsight. I got to get that. I look back and see how Christ was near. But if you're in a trial right now, if you're struggling right now, what can you do to experience God's nearness? I got one theological application, one practical application. Here's a theological one. You need to learn how to preach to yourself that not only is Jesus near, but Jesus knows. Not only is he near, but Jesus knows what you're going through. And this blew me away this week because I've read this passage probably a million times. I've never picked up on this. But the disciples said, did not our hearts burn within us while we were on the road and while he opened up the scriptures to us? Well, what scriptures are they talking about? It's the text that said Jesus had to suffer. The text that said Jesus had to go through the trials, that Jesus had to die. The Jesus they identify with is the suffering Jesus. And the suffering Jesus knows what you're going through. Because right, we love exalted Jesus. We praise exalted Jesus. He's conquering. He's glorified. He's exalted. Praise God. That's all true. But he's also suffering Jesus. Because if you only know exalted Jesus, that gives you no room to struggle. That forces you to say, I'm good when I'm not. No, Jesus knows. Because he's suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends and family. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by the masses. Jesus knows what it's like to watch loved ones die. He knows what it's like to wrestle with God. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Whatever you're feeling right now, if you're in the midst of trial, when Jesus is near because Jesus knows. You need to learn to preach that into your soul. You need to learn to preach that into your head and into your heart. That's the theological truth. Here's the applicational truth. Michael asked me this week, when did I first experience God's nearness? And it kind of knocked me off kilter because I hadn't really thought about it. Because again, I can tell the story in hindsight, but that's not experiencing it. And I think I would say it this way. Jesus is near when we are close. And what I mean by that is this. I didn't experience his nearness until I got open and honest and authentic with some men in my life who just ministered to me. I didn't feel his nearness until I let people speak into my life and I let myself say, listen, I'm jammed up. I'm in a really tight spot and I really need help. When I let myself get close to other Christians, that's when I felt Jesus' nearness. 
It should surprise us. Remember when Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my presence, then I am with you? Like he wasn't lying. Jesus is near when we are close. One thing I love, love, love about this church is we have such a priority on friendship. That's our ministry model. And we don't do it out of the blue. Like We believe in that because when we're close, Jesus is near. You see God with friendship. And I get it. If you're feeling like you're in a trial, the, the, you want to pull away. right? You want to get by yourself. You want to suffer in silence. No, Jesus is near when we are close. Get involved. Let people speak into your life. How do you interact with God in the midst of trials? Now you preach. You go to bed preaching. Jesus is near because Jesus knows. And you hold on to the promise that Jesus is near when we are close. Genesis, um, my hope this morning it's that we'd have the opportunity and the freedom to be honest. That we would say, I need some help. That we would take off the painted smiles, that we'd stop wearing the nice clothes just because that's what we're supposed to do. And we could say, I'm not okay. Because it's okay not to be okay. No one's asking to be Superman or Wonder Woman of the Christian faith. You can be in that spot. It's just not okay to be. It's just not okay to live that way, to settle for that. Because you want to know how Luke twenty four ends. The disciples, after they see Jesus, they stand up, they bolt back the seven miles, they tell everybody that Jesus is near, and they start to worship. He's going to use your trial. He's going to turn it into worship. Just don't miss it. Because Jesus is near.